Please check the description for a link to paper copies of the books featured and upcoming as well as links to other products that will help support this podcast. Thanks for being awesome. This section is about how to exploit an edge and develop the story on a company. The first step is to determine what kind of stock you're considering. Six stock categories are discussed, including what you can expect to gain from each type. Developing the story requires some research. The importance of earnings to the eventual success or failure of a stock, how to monitor a company's progress, and how to evaluate the price-to-earnings ratio are elements of the story. Peter Lynch tells you how to develop the story and pick out the winners. Chapter 6, Stalking the Ten-Bagger The best place to look for a ten-bagger is close to home. The shopping mall, wherever you work, are good places to begin. Ten-baggers like Dunkin' Donuts and The Limited were apparent at hundreds of locations across the country. The women shopping at the local New Limited outlet had a chance to see the opportunity, research the company, and buy the stock long before Wall Street got its first clue. The average person comes across two or three likely prospects each year. All along the retail and wholesale chains, people who make things, sell things, clean things, or analyze things encounter stock-picking opportunities. Do you receive a paycheck? Automatic Data Processing is a company which processes 9 million paychecks a week for 180,000 small and medium-sized companies. This was one of the all-time great stock-buying opportunities. The company went public in 1961 and has increased earnings every year. Automatic data processing sounds like the sort of high-tech enterprise I advise against, but it's not a computer company. It uses computers to process paychecks. Users of technologies are beneficiaries of high-tech. As competition drives down computer prices, firms like Automatic Data Processing can buy cheaper equipment. This reduces their operating expenses and leads to greater profits. Who had an edge on Automatic Data Processing? The officers and employees of the 180,000 client firms could have known about its success. In fact, can't think of an equivalent opportunity in your life? Let's say you're retired. You live 10 miles from the nearest traffic light. Grow your own food and don't have a television set. One day you have to go to the doctor because the country life has given you ulcers. This is the perfect introduction to Smith Klein Beckman, the makers of Tagamet. Hundreds of doctors, thousands of patients, and millions of friends and relatives of patients heard about the wonder drug Tagamet. Pharmacists dispensing the pills and delivery boys delivering prescriptions also heard about the drug. Tagamet was a boon for the afflicted and a bonanza for the investor. These users and prescribers had a big lead on Wall Street. No doubt some of the oxymorons on Wall Street suffered from ulcers themselves, but Smith-Klein must not have been on their buy lists. From 1974 to 1976, the testing period for the drug, the price climbed from around $4 to $7. The stock sold for $11 in 1977 when the government approved Tagment. From there, it shot up to $72 a share. Many people invest in the stock market in a manner similar to playing poker without looking at your cards. The edge is especially helpful when it comes to deciding when to buy shares in established companies. 
Let's say you own a Goodyear tire store. After three years of slow sales, you suddenly can't keep up with new orders. This is a strong signal to you that Goodyear may be on the rise as a stock. You already know Goodyear's new high-performance tire is the best in the market. You should call your broker and ask for the latest background information on the tire company. Don't wait for your broker to call you. When he calls, he'll want to tell you about a company like Wang Laboratories. What good is a Wang tip to you unless you work in a computer-related job? What do you know that thousands of other people don't know a lot better? If the answer is nothing, then you don't have an edge in Wang. But if you sell, make, or distribute tires, you've got an edge in Goodyear. I could go on for the rest of this tape about the advantages of knowing the industry you're involved in. On top of that, there's the consumer's edge. Whichever edge applies to you can help you to develop your own stock detection system outside the Wall Street channels. Remember, if you wait to hear it from Wall Street, you'll get the news late. Chapter 7. I've got it. I've got it. What is it? However a stock has come to your attention, the discovery is not a buy signal. Just because Dunkin' Donuts is always crowded doesn't mean you should buy the stock. Not yet. What you've got so far is a lead to a story that must be developed. You should treat this lead as if it were an anonymous tip left mysteriously in your mailbox. Developing the story is not difficult. It only takes a couple of hours. This homework phase is as important to your success in stocks as your previous vow to ignore short-term market gyrations. It is possible to make money in stocks occasionally without doing any of the research, but why take unnecessary chances? Remember, investing without research is like playing stud poker and never looking at the cards. Procter & Gamble is a good example of why you need to develop the story. Procter & Gamble makes Pampers. Pampers, like legs, was one of the most profitable new products of the 1970s. Should you have rushed out to buy the stock on the strength of Pampers? No, not if you had begun to develop the story. In five minutes, you would have noticed that Procter & Gamble is a huge company. Pampers sales amount to a small part of the company's total earnings. Pampers made some difference to Procter & Gamble, but it was nothing like Legs did for a smaller company, Haynes. If you're considering a stock on the strength of a specific product, the first thing to find out is, what effect will the success of the product have on the company's bottom line? The size of a company has a great deal to do with what you can expect to get out of the stock. Specific products aside, big companies don't have big stock moves. You'll get your biggest moves in smaller companies. The first thing I do is establish the size of the company in relation to others in the industry. Then I place it into one of six general categories. Slow grower, stalwart, fast grower, cyclical, asset play, or turnaround. These six categories cover all of the useful distinctions any investor has to make. Slow growers are usually large, mature companies. They are expected to grow slightly faster than the gross national product. You won't find a lot of 2 to 4% growers in my portfolio. Because if companies aren't going anywhere fast, neither will the price of their stocks. 
stalwarts are companies like Coca-Cola, Bristol-Myers, Procter & Gamble, and Colgate-Palmolive. These multi-billion dollar hulks are not agile climbers, but they're faster than slow growers. When you traffic in stalwarts, you can expect a 10 to 12% annual growth in earnings. In the market we've had since 1980, the stalwarts have been good, but not spectacular performers. If you own a stalwart like Colgate-Palmolive, and the stock's gone up 50% in a year or two, you have to figure that's enough and think about selling. I always keep some stalwarts in my portfolio because they offer pretty good protection during recessions. Bristol-Myers went sideways during the 1981-82 period when the stock market fell apart. The fast growers are among my favorite investments. These are small, aggressive, new enterprises that grow at 20 to 25% a year. This is the land of the 10 to 100 baggers. Fast growers are high-risk investments, particularly the stocks of the younger companies, which tend to be overzealous and underfinanced. An underfinanced company with headaches usually winds up in Chapter 11. Fast growers are big winners in the stock market. I look for the ones with good balance sheets making substantial profits. The trick is figuring out when they'll stop growing. A cyclical is a company whose sales and profits rise and fall with changes in the economy. In a growth industry, business keeps expanding. In a cyclical industry, it repeatedly expands and contracts. Autos, airlines, tire companies, steel companies, and chemical companies are cyclicals. They flourish when we're coming out of a recession and into a vigorous economy. The stock prices tend to rise much faster than the prices of the stalwarts. The cyclicals suffer when the economy is going the other way. You can lose more than 50% of your investment very quickly if you buy cyclicals in the wrong part of the economic cycle. Cyclicals are often lumped together with the trusty stalwarts because most are large, well-known companies. Since Ford is a blue chip, one might assume it will behave like Bristol-Myers, another blue chip. It doesn't. The common stock of Ford fluctuates wildly as the company loses billions of dollars in recessions and makes billions during periods of economic growth. Bristol-Myers' earnings will not go down in a recession. Ford's earnings could disappear. It's important to know that owning Ford is very different from owning Bristol-Myers. Turnaround candidates are battered companies. They aren't slow growers. They are no growers. They aren't cyclicals. They rebound. In fact, these companies may already be bankrupt. Turnaround companies are potential fatalities, like Chrysler. Chrysler was a cyclical that went so far down, people thought it would never come back up. Turnaround stocks can make up lost ground very quickly, as Chrysler has proven. An asset play is a company sitting on something valuable that you know about, but Wall Street has overlooked. The asset may be simple, like a pile of cash. Sometimes it's real estate. Pebble Beach was a great asset play. At the end of 1976, this stock was selling for $14.5 per share. There are 1.7 million shares outstanding. So the company was valued at only $25 million. Less than three years later, 20th Century Fox bought out Pebble Beach for $72 million, or $42.5 per share. After buying the company, 20th Century turned around and sold Pebble Beach's gravel pit. One of the company's many assets 
for over $30 million. In other words, the gravel pit alone was worth more than what investors paid for the whole company in 1976. Companies don't stay in the same category forever. Fast growers lead exciting lives and then burn out. Sooner or later, they exhaust themselves and become slow growers and stalwarts. Some companies fall into two categories at once. Some, like Disney, have been in every major category. Putting stocks into categories is the first step to developing the story. You'll know what the story is supposed to be after you've correctly identified the category. The next step is filling in the details so you can intelligently guess how the story will turn out. Chapter 8. The Perfect Stock. What a Deal. Getting the story is a lot easier if you understand the company's business. I'd rather invest in pantyhose than in fiber optics. The simpler it is, the better I like it. You never find the perfect risk-free company, the kind of stock I dream about. But you can recognize favorable attributes, which will greatly increase your likelihood of success. The following discussion covers 13 of the most favorable attributes you should look for. The first attribute is that the company name is dull, or even better, ridiculous. Automatic data processing is boring, but not quite as boring as Bob Evans Farms. But even Bob Evans Farms won't win the prize for the best name you could give a stock. Pep Boys, Manny Moan Jack, is the most promising name I've ever heard. It's better than dull. It's ridiculous. Who wants to put money in a company that sounds like the Three Stooges? No Wall Street analyst in his right mind would recommend a stock called Pep Boys, Manny Moan Jack. Unless, of course, Wall Street already realizes how profitable it is. By the time Wall Street knows about it, the price is already up tenfold. The second attribute is the company does something dull. I love to find a company with a boring name that also does something boring. Crown Cork and Seal makes cans and bottle caps. What's duller than that? A company that does boring things is almost as good as a company with a boring name. Both together is terrific. Both together will keep the oxymorons away. Ultimately, the good news will compel them to buy in, and that always pushes the stock price higher and higher. The third attribute is that the company does something disagreeable. What's better than boring? The answer is boring and disgusting. A company that does something that makes people shrug, wretch, or turn away in disgust is ideal. Take Safety Clean, for example. Safety Clean provides gas stations with a machine that washes greasy auto parts. Gas stations gladly pay for the service. What analyst would want to write about this? What portfolio manager want to have Safety Clean on his buy list? Not many, which is precisely what's endearing about Safety Clean. The fourth attribute is that the company is a spin-off. Spin-offs of companies into separate freestanding entities often result in lucrative investments. Large parent companies do not want to spin-off divisions just to watch them fail. A spin-off failure brings embarrassing publicity, which reflects badly on the parent. Therefore, the spin-offs normally have strong balance sheets and are well-prepared to succeed as independent entities. The greatest spin-offs of all were the Baby Bell companies created from the AT&T breakup. While the parent has been an uninspiring performer until recently, the average stock gain in the newly created companies 
was 114% from November 1983 to October 1988. When the dividends are added in, the return is more like 170%. This beats the total return of the market by more than twice. The fifth attribute is that institutions don't own it and the analysts don't follow it. If you find a stock with little or no institutional ownership, you found a potential winner. Find a company no analyst has visited and you found a double winner. You can find these stocks in banks, savings and loans, and insurance companies. There are thousands of these opportunities, but Wall Street keeps up with less than 100. The sixth attribute is that there are negative rumors about the company, like it's involved with toxic waste and or the mafia. It's hard to think of a more perfect industry than waste management. Sewage and toxic waste dumps disturb people. Waste Management Inc., the largest company in the waste management industry, is a better prospect than Safety Clean because it has two unthinkable things going for it. The toxic waste industry itself and the mafia. Anybody who fantasizes that the mafia runs all the Italian restaurants, the newsstands, the dry cleaners, and the construction sites also thinks the mafia controls the garbage industry. This fantastic assertion was a great advantage to the earliest buyers of waste management stock. The shares were grossly underpriced relative to the actual opportunity. The seventh attribute is that there's something depressing about it. My all-time favorite in this category is Service Corp International, or SRV. Now, if there's anything Wall Street would rather ignore besides toxic waste, it's mortality. SRV does burials. SRV also pioneered the pre-need funeral policy. This is a popular layaway plan. It enables you to pay off your casket and funeral service now while you can afford it. SRV gets the money for its pre-need sales and the cash continues to compound. This company was shunned by most professional investors. SRV executives had to beg the professionals to listen to their story. Here was the perfect opportunity. Everything was working. You could see it happening. The earnings kept increasing. There was rapid growth, almost no debt, and Wall Street turned the other way. The eighth attribute is that it's a company in a no-growth industry. Many people prefer to invest in a high-growth industry where there's a lot of sound and fury. Not me. I prefer to invest in no-growth industries like funerals. For every product in a hot industry, there are a thousand recent graduates trying to figure out how to make it cheaper and better in Taiwan or Korea. This doesn't happen with bottle caps, oil drum retrieval, or funerals. In a no-growth industry, especially one that's boring and upsets people, there's no problem with competition. That gives you the leeway to continue to grow and gain market share. SRV already owns 5% of the nation's funeral homes, and there's nothing to stop it from owning 15%. The ninth attribute is that it's got a niche. I'd much rather own a local rock pit than 20th Century Fox. A movie company competes with other movie companies, while the rock pit has a niche. Owning a rock pit is very safe and very boring. But if you've got the only gravel pit in town, you've got a virtual monopoly. A rock pit is valuable because nobody can compete with it. The nearest rival owner may be two towns away. 
He's not going to haul his rocks into your territory because the trucking bills eat up his profit. I always look for niches. Drug and chemical companies have niches. Once a patent is approved, all the rival companies with the billions in research dollars can't invade the territory. They must invent a different drug, prove it is different, and then do three years of clinical trials before the government lets them sell it. The tenth attribute is that people have to keep buying the product. I'd rather invest in a company making drugs, soft drinks, razor blades, or cigarettes than a company that makes toys. Somebody can make a wonderful doll that every child must have, but every child only gets one. Eight months later, that doll is removed from the shelves to make room for the newest doll the children must have, manufactured by a different company. Why take chances on fickle purchases when there's so much steady business around? The eleventh attribute is that a company is a user of technology. Why invest in a computer company that struggles to survive in an endless price war when you can invest in a company benefiting from the price war? Again, look at the automatic data processing. As computers get cheaper, ADP can do its job cheaper. This results in increase in profits. The twelfth attribute is that the company insiders are buyers of the stock. There's no better tip-off to the probable success of a stock than that the people in the company are putting their own money into it. If you see someone with a $45,000 salary buying $10,000 worth of stock, you can be sure it's a meaningful vote of confidence. There's only one reason insiders buy. They think the stock price is undervalued and will eventually go up. The 13th attribute is the company is buying back shares. Buying back shares is the simplest and best way a company can reward its investors. If a company has faith in its own future, then why shouldn't it invest in it itself? Massive share buybacks occurred after the October 1987 market drop. This stabilized the market at the height of its panic. These buybacks reward investors over the long term. When a stock is bought by its company, it is taken out of circulation. The number of outstanding shares is reduced. This can have a magical effect on the earnings per share, which in turn has a magical effect on the stock price. If a company buys back half its shares and its overall earnings are constant, the earnings per share have doubled. Chapter nine: Stocks I'd avoid. If I could avoid a single stock, would be the hottest stock in the hottest industry. Hot stocks can go up fast. Usually they go way beyond any of the known indicators of value. Since there's nothing but thin air supporting them, they fall quickly. If you aren't clever at selling hot stocks, you'll watch your profits turn into losers. When the price falls, it falls fast. Remember what happened to disk drives? The experts said this industry would grow at 50% a year, and they were right; it did. But with 30 rival companies scrambling for the action, there are no profits. There's never been a hotter stock than Xerox in the 1960s. Copying was a fabulous industry, and Xerox had control of the entire process. In 1972, the analysts assumed Xerox would keep growing indefinitely. But the Japanese got into it, IBM got into it, and Eastman Kodak got into it. Soon there were over 20 firms making nice copy machines, and product prices collapsed. Xerox got frightened. And bought several unrelated businesses it didn't know how to run. 
the stock lost 84% of its value. Contrast the poor stock performance of Xerox to that of Philip Morris. Philip Morris sells cigarettes, a negative growth industry in the U.S. Over the past 15 years, Xerox dropped from $160 to $60 a share, while Philip Morris rose from $14 to over $140. Philip Morris increases its earnings by expanding its market share abroad, by raising prices, and by cutting costs. Philip Morris has found its niche. Negative growth industries do not attract flocks of competitors. Another stock I'd avoid is a stock in a company that's been touted as the next IBM, the next McDonald's, or the next Disney. The next of something almost never is, whether on Broadway, the bestseller list, the National Basketball Association, or Wall Street. In fact, when people tout a stock as the next of something, it often marks the end of the prosperity for both the imitator and the original. When other computer companies were called the next IBM, you should have guessed IBM would have some terrible times. It has. Today, most computer companies are trying not to become the next IBM. Sometimes profitable companies prefer to blow their money on foolish acquisitions instead of buying back shares. I call this process diversification. The dedicated diversifier seeks out merchandise that is overpriced and beyond his realm of understanding. This ensures maximum losses. Consider the story of Melville and Genesco, two shoe manufacturers. One successfully diversified and one diversified. 30 years ago, Melville was making men's shoes for its own family of shoe stores. Sales grew as the company began to lease shoe departments and other stores, most notably in the Kmart chain. After years of experience in discount shoe retailing, the company launched into a series of acquisitions. They always established the success of one before proceeding with another. Melville bought CVS, a discount drugstore operation in 1969, Marshalls, a discount apparel chain in 1976, and KB Toys in 1981. During the same period, Melville reduced its number of shoe manufacturing plants from 22 to 1. Slowly but efficiently, a shoe manufacturer had transformed itself into a diversified retailer. Genesco, on the other hand, went off in a frenzy. Starting in 1956, it acquired Bonwit Teller, Henri Bendel, Tiffany, and Crest Variety stores. Then it got into security consulting, men's and women's jewelry, knitting materials, textile and blue jeans. Genesco spread out into many forms of retailing and wholesaling while still trying to manufacture shoes. The company made 150 acquisitions from 1956 to 1973. These purchases greatly increased the company's sales. Genesco got bigger on paper, but its fundamentals were deteriorating. The difference in the strategies of these two companies ultimately showed up in their earnings and stock performances. Both stocks suffered from the 1973-1974 bear market, but Melville's earnings were growing steadily and its stock rebounded. It was a 30-bagger by 1987. Genesco's financial position continued to deteriorate after 1974. The stock has never come back. I get calls all the time from people recommend solid companies for Magellan. Then they lower their voices as if to confide something personal and they say, 
There's this great stock I want to tell you about. It's too small for your fund, but you ought to look at it for your own account. It's a fascinating idea, and it could be a big winner. These are long shots, also known as whisper stocks. Often the whisper companies are on the brink of solving the latest national problems, the oil shortage, drug addiction, or AIDS. The solution is either very imaginative or impressively complicated. Whisper stocks have a hypnotic effect. The stories usually have emotional appeal. These stocks may go up before they come down, but they are lousy long-term propositions. I've lost money in each one of them I've bought. They have great story, but no substance. That's the essence of a whisper stock. Another stock out of void is in a company selling 25 to 50% of its wares to a single customer. If the loss of one customer would be catastrophic to a supplier, be wary of investing in the supplier. Just drive companies like Tandon were always on the brink of disaster because they were too dependent on a few clients. Chapter 10. Earnings, Earnings, Earnings. Let's say you notice Sensomatic, the company that invented the tag and buzzer system for foiling shoplifters. The Sensomatic stock rose from $2 to $42 as the business expanded between 1979 and 1983. Your broker tells you it's a small company and a fast grower. You've reviewed your portfolio and found two stalwarts and three cyclicals. What possible assurance do you have that Sensomatic will go up in price. And if you're buying, how much should you pay? What you're really asking is, what is it that makes a company valuable? Why will it be more valuable tomorrow than it is today? There are many theories, but to me, it always comes down to earnings and assets, especially earnings. Analyze a company's stock on the basis of earnings and assets is no different than analyzing a laundromat, a drugstore, or an apartment building. Although it's easy to forget sometimes, a share of stock is not a lottery ticket. It's part ownership of a business. When you buy stock in a fast-growing company, you're really betting on its chances to earn more money in the future. That's why investors seek out promising fast growers. They bid the stocks up even when the companies are earning very little. People may wonder what the Japanese are doing, but the earnings will decide the fate of a stock. People may bet on the hourly wiggles in the market, but it's the earnings that waggle the wiggles over the long term. Any serious discussion of earnings involves the price-to-earnings ratio, also known as the P.E. ratio. This ratio is a numerical shorthand for the relationship between the stock price and the earnings of the company. The P.E. ratio for the stock is listed in the daily stock tables of most major newspapers. Like the earnings line, the P ratio is often a useful tool to help you determine whether the stock is fairly priced in relation to the company's money-making potential. The P ratio we thought of as a number of years it will take the company to earn back the amount of your initial investment, assuming the company's earnings stay constant. If you buy shares in a company selling at two times earnings or at a PE of two, your initial investment is earned back in two years. If you buy shares in a company selling at 40 times earnings, or a P of 40, it takes 40 years to accomplish the same thing. With all the low P.E. opportunities around, why would anyone buy a stock with a high P.E.? The only reason 
is because they're looking for a fast grower. They're investing in the company's potential. You'll also find that the PE levels tend to be low for slow growers and high for fast growers. The cyclicals vacillate in between. If you remember only one point about PE ratios, you should remember to avoid stocks with excessively high PEs. An extremely high PE is a handicap to a stock most of the time. Company PE ratios do not exist in a vacuum. The stock market has its own collective PE ratio, which is a good indicator whether the market at large is over or undervalued. I know I've already advised you to ignore the market, but when you find a few stocks are selling at inflated prices, it's likely that most stocks are selling at inflated prices. That's what happened before the big drop in 1973 and 74, and also in 1987. How can you predict future earnings? The best you can do with current earnings is make an educated guess as to whether a stock is fairly priced. If you do this much, you'll never overpay for Bristol-Myers, Coca-Cola, or McDonald's. However, what you'd really like to know is what's going to happen to earnings in the next month, year, or decade. Battalions of analysts and statisticians are launched against the questions of future growth and earnings. I'm not about to suggest that you can begin to predict earnings or growth in earnings successfully on your own. So you can't predict future earnings, but you can find out how a company plans to increase earnings. Then you can check periodically to see if the plans are working out. There are five basic ways a company can increase its earnings. They are reduce cost, raise prices, expand into new markets, sell more of its product in the old markets, and revitalize, close, or dispose of losing operations. These are the factors to investigate as you develop the story. If you have an edge, this is where it's going to be the most helpful. Chapter 11, The Two-Minute Drill At this point, you should know whether you're dealing with a slow grower, a stalwart, a fast grower, a turnaround, an asset play, or cyclical. The price-earnings ratio has given you a rough idea of whether the stock is currently undervalued or overvalued relative to its immediate prospects. The next step is to learn what the company is doing to bring about added prosperity, increased growth, or whatever happy event is expected to occur. This is known as the story. Something dynamic must happen to keep the earnings moving along. The more certain you are about what that something is, the better you'll be able to follow the script. Analyst reports and short essays in the publication Value Line provide the professional version of the story. But you can develop your own detailed script if you've got an edge on the company. Before buying a stock, everyone should be able to give a short monologue summarizing why they're interested in the company. The following sample monologues are examples of ones that have worked well for me in the past few years. If it's a slow-growing company, you're probably in it for the dividend. The important elements of the script include, this company has increased its earnings every year for the last 10. It offers an attractive yield. It's never reduced or suspended a dividend. In fact, it's raised a dividend during good times and bad. It's a telephone utility, so the new cellular operations may add a kicker to the growth rate. 
If it's a cyclical company, your script revolves around business conditions, inventories, and prices. There has been a three-year slump in the auto industry, but this year, things have turned around. Car sales are up for the first time in recent memory. GM's new models are selling well. In the last 18 months, GM has closed five inefficient plants, cut 20% off labor costs, and earnings are about to turn sharply higher. If it's an asset play, what are the assets? How much are they worth? The stock sells for eight, but the video cassette division alone is worth four dollars a share, and the real estate is worth another seven. That's a bargain. I'm getting the rest of the company from minus three. Insiders are buying, the company has steady earnings, and there's no debt to speak of. If it's a turnaround, has the company taken action to improve its fortunes? Is the plan working? General Mills has made great progress in curing its diversification. It's gone from 11 businesses to two. The company has sold Eddie Bauer, Talbots, Kenner, and Parker Brothers for top dollar and has returned to what it knows best, restaurants and packaged foods. If it's a stalwart, the key issues are the P.E. ratio, whether the stock has already had a recent run-up in price, and what, if anything, is happening to accelerate the growth rate. Coca-Cola is selling at the low end of its P.E. range. The stock hasn't gone anywhere for two years, but the company has improved itself. Coca-Cola sold half its interest in Columbia Pictures to the public. Diet drinks have sped up the growth rate. Foreign sales are increasing. In the past few years, the company has bought out many of its independent bottlers. Coca-Cola has better control over distribution and domestic sales now. If it's a fast grower, where and how can it continue to grow fast? La Quinta is a motel chain that began in Texas and was very profitable. The company duplicated its successful formula in Arkansas and Louisiana. Last year, it added 20% more motel units than the year before. Earnings have increased every quarter. The company plans rapid future expansion, and its debt is not excessive. Motels are a low-growth, competitive industry, but La Quinta has found a niche. It has a long way to go, before it has saturated the market. I often devote several hours to developing a script. Let me give you two examples. The first is a situation I checked out properly. That was La Quinta Motorins, which was a 15-bagger for me. In the second example, there was something I forgot to ask. That was Bildner's, a 15-bagger in reverse. The motel industry was due for a cyclical turnaround. I'd already invested in United Inns, the largest franchisee of Holiday Inns. During a telephone interview with the vice president at United Inns, I asked which company was Holiday Inns most successful competitor. Asking about the competition is one of my favorite techniques for finding promising new stocks. Muckamucks speak negatively about the competition most of the time. But when an executive of one company admits he's impressed by another company, you can bet the competitor is doing something right. La Quinta Motor Inns, vice president of United Inns Enthused, they're doing a great job. They're killing us in Houston and in Dallas. That was the first time I had ever heard of La Quinta. I wanted to know what the story was. The concept was simple. 
La Quinta offered rooms of Holiday Inn quality at lower prices. La Quinta had eliminated the wedding area, the conference rooms, the large reception area, the kitchen area, and the restaurant. Excess space contributing nothing to profits while adding to the costs. La Quinta's idea was to install a Denny's or similar 24-hour place next door to each motel. Somebody else would worry about the food. Most hotels and motels lose money on their restaurants. Where was the niche? La Quinta had a specific target, the small businessman who didn't care for the budget motel but didn't want to spend a lot of money either. If he had the choice, he'd rather pay less for the equivalent luxury of a Holiday Inn. La Quinta was there to provide the equivalent luxury and at locations that are often more convenient to traveling businessmen. Because La Quinta's guests were business travelers, a high percentage of them book rooms in advance. This gave La Quinta the advantage of a more predictable clientele. Nobody had captured this part of the market, the middle ground underneath the Hilton hotels and the Holiday Inns, but above the budget inns. La Quinta was a great story. They had been operating for several years by the time I heard about them. The original La Quinta had been duplicated in many different locations. The company was growing at an astounding 50% a year, and the stock was selling at a very attractive 10 times earnings multiple. This made it an incredible bargain. To top it off, I was delighted to discover that only three brokerage firms covered La Quinta. Also, less than 20% of the stock was held by institutions, another major positive. I followed up by spending three nights in three different La Quintas. I was satisfied La Quinta was Holiday Inn's equal. I bought as much La Quinta as possible for the Magellan Fund. I made 11-fold on it over a five-year period before it suffered a turndown. I made two major mistakes with J. Bildner & Sons. Bildner's is a specialty food store located across the street from my Boston office. It sells gourmet sandwiches and prepared hot foods. Bildner's is a cross between a convenience store and a three-star restaurant. I had first-hand information that they had the best bread and the best sandwiches in Boston. That was my edge. Bildner's was going public to raise money so it could expand into other locations. The company had carved out a niche, the millions of white-collar types who won't eat microwave sandwiches and who also refuse to cook. I researched the operation by wandering into the store across the street. It was clean, efficient, full of satisfied customers, and a fabulous moneymaker. From the prospectus of the stock offering, I learned that Builders wasn't going to burden itself with excessive bank debt. This was a plus. Without further investigation, I bought Bildner's at the initial offering price of $13 in September 1986. Soon after the sale of stock, Bildner's opened two outlets and a couple of Boston department stores. They flopped. Then it opened three new outlets in mid-Manhattan. They were killed by the delis. It continued to expand into more distant cities. By quickly spending more than the proceeds from the public offering, Builders had financially overextended itself. One or two mistakes at a time might not have been so bad, but Builders suffered multiple 
simultaneous failures. I'm sure the company learned from these mistakes, but there was no second chance once the money ran out. The stock bottomed at one-eighth of a dollar. The management retreated to its original stores, including the one across from my office. I gradually unloaded my shares at losses ranging from 50 to 95%. The lesson here is if the prototype is in Texas, hold off buying until the company shows it can make money in Illinois. Does the idea work in some other place? That's the question I forgot to ask builders. Chapter 12, Getting the Facts Fund managers have an advantage when it comes to getting the facts in a company. Companies will talk to us several times a week if we'd like. On the other hand, I can't imagine any useful information that the amateur investor can't get. All the pertinent facts are waiting to be picked up. Companies are required to tell nearly all in their prospectuses, quarterlies, and annual reports. Stockbrokers can be your information gatherers. They can provide the S&P reports, investment newsletters, annuals, quarterlies, and prospectuses, the value line survey, and their firm's research. Let them get the data on the P.E. ratios, growth rates, insider buying, and institutional ownership. They'll be happy to do it once they realize you're serious. Professionals call companies all the time. Amateurs rarely think of it. The Investor Relations Office is a good place for you to get answers to specific questions. Prepare your questions before you call the company. Earnings are a good topic, but it's not proper etiquette to ask the company how much you're going to make, any more than it's proper for strangers to ask you for your annual salary. The accepted form of question is subtle. What are the Wall Street estimates on your company's earnings for the upcoming year is a better question. As you already know, future earnings are hard to predict. The companies themselves aren't sure how much they will earn. What you really want from investor relations is the company's reaction to whatever script you've been trying to develop. If you don't have a script, you can learn something by asking two general questions. What are the positives this year? And what are the negatives? In most cases, you'll hear something that confirms what you suspected, especially if you understand the business. But every so often, you'll learn something unexpected. Things are either better or worse than they appear. The unexpected can be very profitable if you're buying or selling stocks. When you call investor relations, you can have confidence the facts you get are correct. The adjectives, though, will vary widely. Different kinds of companies use different words to describe the same scene. It's important to remember, when looking at the same sky, people in mature industries see clouds, where people in immature industries see pie. Don't waste your time deciphering the corporate vocabulary. It's simpler to ignore all the adjectives. Wandering through stores and tasting things is one of my research strategies. Although it's not a substitute for asking the right questions, it's reassuring to personally check out the product. Before I bought La Quinta, I spent a few nights in the motor inns. I could have gotten the information from investor relations, but it wouldn't have been the same thing as bouncing on their beds. It's no surprise that so many annual reports end up in the garbage can. The text on the glossy pages is understandable, but normally useless. 
The numbers in the back can sometimes seem incomprehensible and intimidating. But there's a way to get something out of an annual report. It only takes a few minutes. Consider the 1987 Ford Motor annual report. Turn directly to the consolidated balance sheet on the cheaper paper. The general rule with annual reports is the cheaper the paper, the more valuable the information. The balance sheet lists the assets and the liabilities of the company. I look at the current assets column and take the cash figure and add that number to the marketable securities. The total is the company's overall cash position. Comparing the 1987 cash to the 1986 cash, also listed, I see Ford is socking away a lot of money. This is a sign of prosperity. Then I look at the other half of the balance sheet to the entry that says long-term debt. I see that the 1987 long-term debt has been greatly reduced from 1986. Debt reduction is another sign of prosperity. A balance sheet is improving when cash is increasing relative to debt. Subtracting the long-term debt from the total cash, I arrive at Ford's net cash position. The cash and cash assets greatly exceed the debt. When cash exceeds debt, it's very favorable. No matter what happens, Ford isn't going out of business. To keep it simple, ask your broker whether Ford is buying back shares, whether cash exceeds long-term debt, and how much cash there is per share. You can also get the numbers from the S&P reports or from ValueLine. ValueLine is easier to read than a balance sheet and a good place for an amateur to start. It tells you about the cash and debt, summarizes the long-term record, so you can see what happened during the last recession. It also rates companies for financial strength on a scale of 1 to 5. This rating gives you an idea of a company's ability to withstand adversity. To summarize the material on the two-minute drill and getting the facts, the difference between gambling and investing is knowing what you own, checking the financial condition, and constantly monitoring the story. Chapter 13, Some Famous Numbers When a specific product arouses my interest in a company, the first thing I want to know is what the product means to the company. What percent of sales does it represent? Legg sent Haynes stock soaring because Haynes was a relatively small company. Pampers was a more profitable product than Legg's, but it didn't mean as much to the huge Procter & Gamble. We've already talked about the price-to-earnings ratio, but I want to add another bit of information. The P.E. ratio of any fairly priced company will equal its growth rate. In general, a P.E. ratio that's half the growth rate is very positive, and one that's twice the growth rate is very negative. We use this measure all the time to analyze stocks for the mutual funds. You want to know if a company's sitting on billions in cash. Let's look at Ford. In the last chapter, we established that Ford had loads of cash in relation to its long-term debt. Cash doesn't always make a difference. More often than not, there isn't enough of it to worry about. Nevertheless, it's always advisable to check the cash position as part of your research. 
How much does a company owe? How much does it own? Debt versus equity. It's the kind of thing a loan officer wants to know about you when deciding whether you're a good credit risk. A normal corporate balance sheet has two sides. The left side lists the assets. The right side shows how the assets are financed. The right side can be divided into debt and equity. One quick way to determine the financial strength of a company is to compare the equity with its total debt. I pay special attention to the debt factor in turnarounds and troubled companies. More than anything else, it's debt that determines which companies will survive and which will go bankrupt. Young companies with heavy debts are always at risk. It's also the kind of debt, as much as the actual amount, that separates the winners from the losers in a crisis. There's bank debt and there's funded debt. Bank debt is the worst kind from the investor's point of view because it's due on demand. It doesn't have to come from a bank. It can take the form of commercial paper, which is loaned from one company to another for a short period of time. The important thing to remember is that it's due very soon. Sometimes it's due on call. This means the lender can ask for his money back at the first sign of trouble. If the borrower can't pay back the money, it's off to Chapter 11. Funded debt, the best kind from the shareholder's point of view, can never be called in as long as the borrower continues to pay the interest. The principal may not be due for 15 to 30 years. Funded debt usually takes the form of regular corporate bonds with long maturities. Unlike banks, bondholders cannot demand immediate repayment of principal. Funded debt gives companies time to wiggle out of trouble. One of the important numbers to consider is the cash dividend. Stocks paying dividends are often favored over stocks that don't pay dividends by investors who want the extra income. But the real issue is how the dividend, or the lack of a dividend, affects the value of a company and its stock price over time. One strong argument in favor of companies that pay dividends is that companies that don't pay dividends have a history of blowing the money on diversifications. Another point in favor of dividend-paying stocks is that the presence of the dividend can keep the stock price from falling as far as it might if there is no dividend. A company with a long record of regularly raising the dividend is your best bet. Stocks like Kellogg and Ralston Prina have not eliminated or reduced dividends during the last three wars and eight recessions. This is the kind of stock you want to own if you believe in dividends. Heavily indebted companies can never offer the same assurance is a company with little debt. An easy number to find is book value. You can find it everywhere. People often invest on the theory that if the book value is $20 a share and the stock sells for $10 a share, they're getting something for half price. But the flaw in this is that the stated book value may not reflect the actual value of the company. It often understates or overstates reality. For example, Penn Central had a book value of more than $60 a share when it went bankrupt. Overvalued assets on the left side of a balance sheet are especially treacherous when there's a lot of debt on the right. Let's say a company shows $400 million in assets and $300 million in debt. This results in a positive book value of $100 million. 
you know the debt part is a real number. But if the 400 million in assets will bring only 200 million in a bankruptcy sale, then the actual book value is a negative 100 million rather than a positive 100 million. The company is less than worthless. When you buy a stock for its book value, you must have a detailed understanding of what those values really are. At Penn Central, tunnels through mountains that hadn't been used for years were counted as assets. As often as book value overstates true worth, it can also understate true worth. This is where you find the greatest asset place. There are many kinds of hidden assets. Sometimes companies own natural resources like land, oil, or precious metals. They may carry these assets on their books at a fraction of the true value. If a company has a large inventory of gold, they may carry it on the books at the original purchase price. As gold has risen sharply in the last 40 years, that's a hidden asset. Earlier I mentioned Pebble Beach, a great hidden asset play in real estate. Real estate plays like that are everywhere. Sometimes you'll find an oil company that's kept the inventory in the ground for 40 years at original cost. The oil alone is worth more than the current price of all the shares of the stock. Another important number to consider is the cash flow of a company. Cash flow is the amount of money a company takes in as a result of doing business. All companies take in cash, but some have to spend more than others to get it. Let's say Pig Iron Inc. sells out its entire inventory and makes $100 million. That's good. Then again, Pig Iron Inc. has to spend $80 million to keep the furnaces up to date. That's bad. If Pig Iron doesn't spend $80 million on furnace improvement, it loses business to more efficient competitors. Philip Morris doesn't have this problem. The cash that comes in doesn't have to struggle against the cash that goes out. It's simply easier for Philip Morris to earn money than it is for Pig Iron Inc. A lot of people use the cash flow numbers to evaluate stocks. If cash flow is mentioned as a reason to buy a stock, be sure it's free cash flow. Free cash flow is what's left over after the normal capital spending is deducted. Pig Iron Inc. will have a lot less free cash flow than Philip Morse. Any reports include a detailed note on inventories in a footnote section to the balance sheet. Check to see if inventories are piling up. An inventory buildup is usually a bad sign. When inventories grow faster than sales, it's a red flag. There are two basic accounting methods used to compute the value of inventories, and one or the other is used in the annual report. They are LIFO and FIFO. As much as this sounds like a pair of poodles, LIFO stands for last in, first out, and FIFO stands for first in, first out. If a company bought gold 30 years ago for $40 an ounce, and yesterday they bought gold for $400 an ounce, and today they sell some gold for $450 an ounce, what is the profit? Under LIFO, it's $50, or $450 minus $400. And under FIFO, it's $410, or $450 minus $40. Under FIFO, the profit is $410, or over eight times the $50 profit using LIFO accounting. Whichever method is used, it's possible to compare this year's LIFO, or FIFO value, to last year's LIFO, or FIFO value. This way you can determine whether there's been an increase or decrease in the size of the inventory. One of the most popular misconceptions in Wall Street 
is that the word growth is synonymous with the word expansion. This leads people to overlook some great growth companies like Philip Morris. You wouldn't see it from the industry because U.S. cigarette consumption is growing at a negative annual rate of about minus 2%. Foreign smokers, however, have taken up where the U.S. smokers left off. But even the foreign sales don't account for Philip Morris's success. The key is that Philip Morris increases its earnings by lowering costs and raising prices. That's the only growth rate that really counts, earnings. Chapter 14, Rechecking the Story Rechecking the company's story every few months is a worthwhile habit. This may involve reading the latest value line or quarterly report. It can be researching the sales and earnings. Has the story changed? With fast growers especially, you'll have to ask, what will keep them growing? There are three phases to a growth company's life. The startup phase, when it works out the kinks in the business. The rapid expansion phase, when it moves into new markets. And the mature phase, also known as the saturation phase. This third phase is when the company begins to prepare for the fact there's no easy way to continue expanding. The first phase is the riskiest for the investor because the success of the enterprise isn't established. The second phase is the safest, and it's when the shareholder normally makes most of his money. The company grows by duplicating its successful formula. The third phase is the most problematic. This is when the company runs into its limitations. New methods must be developed to increase earnings. You want to determine whether the company seems to be moving from one phase into another as you recheck the story. If you look at automatic data processing, the paycheck processing company, you can see that they're beginning to approach saturation of the market. Automatic data processing is late in phase two. When Sensomatic was expanding its shoplifting detection system, the stock went from two to 40. Eventually it reached the limit. Very few new stores to approach. The company was unable to think of new ways to maintain its momentum. The stock fell from 42 and a half in 1983 to a low of $5 and 5 eighths in 1984. As you saw this time approaching, you needed to find out what the new plan was and whether it could succeed. When there's a Wendy's next to every McDonald's, the only way Wendy's will be able to grow will be by winning over McDonald's customers. Where can Anheuser-Busch grow if it has captured 40% of the beer drinking market? Sooner or later, Anheuser-Busch is going to slow down. At that time, the stock price and the P multiple will shrink accordingly. Chapter 15, The Final Checklist All this research takes a couple hours at most for each stock. The more you know, the better. But you don't have to call the company. You also don't have to study the end report with the concentration of a Dead Sea Scroll Scholar. Some of the important numbers apply to specific stock categories and can be ignored when you're looking at the others. The following is a checklist of things you want to know about stocks. Check the price-earnings ratio for every stock you consider. Is it high or low for this company and for similar companies in the same industry? Look into the percentage of institutional ownership. The lower, the better. Find out whether insiders are buying and or the company is buying back its own shares. Both are positive signs. What is the record of earnings growth to date? Are the earnings sporadic or consistent? 
Is the company's balance sheet weak or strong? What is the debt-to-equity ratio? How is it rated for financial strength? What is the company's cash position? For slow growers, you should check to see if the dividends have always been paid and whether they are routinely raised. The stalwarts aren't likely to go out of business, so the key issue is price. The P-E ratio will tell you whether you're paying too much. What is the stalwart's long-term growth rate? If you're planning to hold a stock forever, you want to know how the company has fared during recessions and market declines. For cyclicals, keep tabs on inventories. Remember, if you know your cyclical, you have an advantage in trying to time the cycles. With fast growers, investigate whether the product that's supposed to enrich the company is a major part of the company's business. Has the company duplicated its successes in more than one city or town, proving that expansion works? Check to see the company still has room to grow. Find out whether the stock's P-E ratio is at or near the growth rate. How much of the stock is owned by institutions? With turnarounds, it's very important to know that the company can survive a raid by its creditors. How much cash does the company have? How much debt? What is the debt structure? How is the company supposed to be turning around? Has it rid itself of unprofitable divisions? With asset plays, you want to know the value of the assets. Are there any hidden assets? I hope you remember the following pointers from this section on picking winners. Understand the nature of the companies you own and the specific reasons for holding the stock. You'll have a better idea of what to expect from your stocks after you put them into categories. The stock of big companies makes small moves. Those of small companies make big moves. Consider the size of a company if you expect it to profit from a specific product. Look for small companies that are already profitable and have proven their concept can be successfully cloned. Avoid hot stocks and hot industries. Distrust diversifications. They usually turn out to be diversifications. Take advantage of the valuable fundamental information from your job. It may not reach the professionals for months or years. Invest in simple companies that appear dull, mundane, out of favor, and haven't caught the fancy of Wall Street. Moderately fast growers, 20 to 25% in non-growth industries are ideal investments. Look for companies with niches. When purchasing depressed stocks in troubled companies, seek out the ones with superior financial conditions. Avoid the ones with loads of bank debt. Carefully consider the price-to-earnings ratio. If the stock is grossly overpriced, even if everything else goes right, you won't make any money. Develop a storyline to follow as a way to monitor a company's progress. Look for companies that consistently buy back their own shares. Study the dividend record of a company over the years. Look for companies with little or no institutional ownership. Insider buying is a positive sign. Be patient. A watch stock never boils. Buying stocks based on stated book value alone is dangerous. Only real value counts. Invest at least as much time and effort in choosing a new stock as you would in choosing a new refrigerator.